I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod, where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Daru people, traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tungata Finua of Tefanga Nuiatara, where I'm recording today. Happy weekend. Happy weekend. Delightful. My favourite time of the week. Yeah, mine too. I've been so looking forward to it, especially this chapter, like this section that we read. All the things, all the things. What did you get up to this week that sparked joy for you? So last night I went to, it was my friend Hannah's birthday. and happy her birthday, Hannah. Happy birthday. It's also my dad's birthday today. So happy birthday, dad. Happy birthday, <laughs> dad. Wait, um, what day? Your, your dad's birthday is the 13th? Mm-hmm. My dad's birthday is the 10th. Hey, Pisces, Pisces friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was Pisces' um, birthday on the 11th, I believe. So, oh, March buddies. Happy birthday, everybody. How lovely. Sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, no, that's all good. Um, So, her partner got in touch with me on Thursday to say that he was having a surprise party for her because she was kind of like, oh, maybe I should have. Like, she wanted to do something and then she didn't because of COVID. And then she was like, oh, maybe I should have had a party. And he was like, right, I know what I'll do. I will organize a surprise party for her. Um, So, he messaged me and, like, I got him in touch with one of her other friends. And then when I got there yesterday, she was just, like, so touched and overwhelmed mm-hmm. that, you know, this has happened and we'd all come together for her. And it was just so nice and just so nice to do something for someone else you know yeah. so that was a real moment of joy for me oh I'm so happy yeah I don't think I would love a surprise party now but I definitely had one as a kid um we had a pretty lean year and my mom told me that we couldn't afford a birthday party and then she organized a surprise party for me oh and it was a surprise and I was so I loved it so much that I then organized one for her birthday the following year and I got my dad to call all of her friends and make sure they would be there and I was probably like eight so it wasn't that great of a party but like someone brought a cake and everybody that I asked to showed up and I have a really good yeah good memories about surprise parties I think they can be such a lovely gesture you paid it forward that was lovely she said she never had one as a kid and she always wanted one and I was like I can do that me eight years old perfectly confident in myself (laughs) I love that barely make a phone call but that's fine i've got another parent he'll help (laughs) (laughs) cute what sparked joy for you this week oh so my daughter's school called me at like 9 30 on friday and said please pick up your kid we're sending home all of your five because most of them have COVID." and i was like okay fantastic they wanted us to do the pcr test so we drove straight from school through the drive-thru got our swabs and then came home and i was like guess what? We're an ISO. So we're just going to have an ISO day. And it turns out that an ISO day is us watching Saved by the Bell reboot TV show on my iPad and watercoloring together and eating chips and guacamole. And it was fantastic. We both turned out to be negative, which was great. But just the whole day, instead of being worried about it or like trying to do homework or whatever, I was like, we're just going to watch really cheesy TV and eat junk food and paint. Hmm. And we had a great time. Oh just made me feel happy we got to spend a lot of just downtime together so yeah it's good nice making the most of a bad situation exactly and it was just fun to hang out and not be like we have something to do or somewhere to go or an obligation because usually we do yeah but not that friday we just spent the whole day chilling out and then i had a huge nap and then i had a big sleep so it was like greatness on top of greatness (laughs) sounds like the perfect day to be honest it's really good 
Well, this week we're reading chapters 54 through 63 through the theme of tradition. Jen V, do you have a story for us about tradition? Well, I'll attempt a story. Um, so this week I called my grandmother for the first time in like seven years. I gave her a call on, I think it was Wednesday night, because I've decided that I should make more of an effort. You know, she is my last surviving grandparent. I haven't seen her in like seven years. And, you know, she keeps saying to my mum, I guess I'll never see Jen again and being Aww. really sad about it. So I'm like, well, you know, the least I could do is give her a call. And I'm going to do this every two weeks now. This is the thing that I've committed to. So yeah, I called her on Wednesday. And then a big part of the conversation, she was just telling me what all my first cousins are up to, right? So she was like, oh yeah, this one's gotten married and this one's kids are doing this and this one's getting married this weekend and this one this. And there was a lot of people getting married. Everybody's getting married right now. It's fine. Yeah. Like it was just weird to me because I live in this, I guess, this woke little bubble with my woke little friends, right? Like, mm. so I have a very, I guess, liberal life and I don't really think about traditional life, you know, about marriage and kids and all these things very often. Mm. And then I remember sometimes and like when I was talking to my grandmother that I grew up in quite a traditional country with very traditional ideas about what success looks like and what life looks like and what your role as a woman is in that mm. world. You know, there was very much this idea, like almost Almost everyone I went to school with in South Africa are all married and all have children. All my cousins are married. I'm the last one who's not married. Like most of my cousins are onto their second or third weddings, quite frankly, oh, which wow. made me think about this idea of tradition, right? So you get out of school, you think that you have to get married because that's just what you do. And then you think you have to have children because that's just what you do. And then the tradition doesn't hold up and your marriage doesn't survive and you get divorced. And then you're mm. like, well, I'll just keep on persisting with just this role that I've been set, right? So you get married again. And then you're like, oh, it didn't work out. And then you just try again six months later and you're like, let's get married again. And I think there's some sort of, there's a weird thing at play there that you keep trying, even though the system hasn't worked for you previously, but you're so yeah. committed to the tradition that you keep doing it. And it made me think about how like, mostly when I think about tradition, I think about positive things. I think about the tradition I have with my family around Christmas, right? Like with my parents and we've got really lovely traditions as a little unit. But then talking to some of my other friends, like the tradition of Christmas can be quite hurt because it reminds them of the family that they don't have and the mm. expectations around how you should be behaving around Christmas and how you're supposed to love it and how tradition can be this real double-edged sword that really forces you to compare yourself to other people it like puts you in the stark contrast about where you are and where everyone else is and like yeah. you know comparison is the thief of joy yep it's just a rough space to be in so yeah there's just some musings on tradition I know what you mean about the little woke bubble. I sometimes forget that where I'm from is so different and approaches like having kids and being married. Like I got married at 24, 25, something like that. And that was early for here and super mm. late for where I'm from. Like I had my first child at 27 and like she's 10 now. And some of the, some of our peers, some of my husband's school friends have just had their first kids. Mm. They are starting out. And that is wild to me because I don't think I could do the baby years now at this age. So tired. I'm so tired all the time. <laughs> but yeah, I wonder if there's something about the hope of tradition as well. Like if we throw something at the wall enough, one of them will stick maybe. Yeah, because there's the promise of tradition, right? Yeah. It's supposed to work out. So yeah, you just need to find the right button to press basically. 
Yeah, it's really hard to navigate what like what's expected of us and what we expect from ourselves and also what we want, because sometimes it's really hard to know what we want. Yeah. And when you've been raised in a certain environment, how do you know whether you want it or whether it's just conditioning? Like, I think we see that in this section, right? When Penny's talking to Agatha about the pink and she oh, says to Agatha, it's just, I know. <laughs> But it's like, yeah, how do you know? How do you know what's really you and what's social conditioning? For the record, pink is a fantastic color and I will not be made to apologize for my unabashed love of it. My house and my room is covered in pink stuff. It's totally legit. You can like pink and be a girl. That doesn't mean you're a bad feminist. <laughs> it's just a color. I feel like as my obligation as a person who is a textile artist and an art artsy person in general is to defend all of the colors, even brown. But yeah. <laughs> That's lovely. Thank you for sharing that. And I hope you didn't feel too weird about the whole fact that your cousins are all off marrying and procreating. That can be a weird position to be in. No, it's fine. I just think they think I'm a bit of an anomaly because I'm just not interested at all. And like, I never really dated. I've had one serious relationship that they would know about and that's it. So I think they just think I'm a bit of a weirdo, but that's fine. I'm quite happy to be that. I think they're weirdos for getting married at like 21 and having two kids (laughs) immediately. So hey, that's fine. I, yeah, I sometimes wonder if people don't think about the fact that having kids means you're going to be a parent for the rest of your life and theirs. I really think about, you know, what you said, I think it's the episode that we just published recently where you talked about if you want to have children, you have to do the work beforehand around yeah. what kind of parent you want to be because it's a big commitment. Yeah, absolutely. I think more people need to think about that. Like you do the work before you decide whether you want to have kids. Yeah. And look, there are definitely some situations where I can think of a good friend of mine, Lewix, who sort of ended up parenting a kid that isn't hers. Uh, you know, it's her brother's daughter that has sort of come to live with her and her parents and she's helping she's one third of the trio helping raise this kid and she never she like you never wanted kids and never really saw herself being like partnered with someone and having a family that was just not interesting to her mm-hmm. but as soon as her niece came on the scene she was like no no this is my this is what I'm doing now this affects mm-hmm. everything from here on out so sometimes you get kids handed to you that you just didn't expect yeah if you're gonna have kids or if you think you will please um email me and I will tell you all of the books to get because I have an arsenal a library anyway that was beautiful. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. No, good. Um, did you have some chapter summaries for us? Yes, I do. This is such a great section. You guys are going to love it. Now that Simon is actually at Baz's house, Baz invites him to stay. They talk about what Simon learned. There is a family link to Nicodemus that Baz should explore, and Penny does her own research. Agatha and Penny hang out and do friend things, but it doesn't really work for Agatha. Meanwhile, in Lucy's memories, Davy has regained some of his spark. There's a prophecy. Baz and Simon go to find Nicodemus, but it doesn't really go as planned, and in order to save Baz from himself, Simon does something really drastic. It's kissing. Yes. It's now a kissing book. <laughs> I'm very excited. I might have listened to it like four times in a row while I was making apple butter last night. So I was like, I'm just going to keep going. And I was like, oh, apple butter's not done. Stir, stir, stir. Back to the beginning. Oh. It's a great section. Mm. Okay, we should talk. Like, I don't want to just talk about the kiss. So let's talk about tradition. <laughs> um, I think for me, let's like, firstly, the pitch ancestral home is just an exercise in tradition. It right? absolutely like, is. Agree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This house has just passed down the family that is, you know, a national trust house. They can't change anything in it. It's haunted. They are gargoyles. Except for Fiona spray paying, never mind the bollocks on the antique wallpaper. Fiona, come on. Have some respect for the history of the place. She's such a loose cannon. She's just not actually that. Like, she's kind of like a fake rebel. You know what I mean? She's serious Black. she's like the person who doesn't actually get a septum piercing but puts the little clip on on and then watches her mom go like 
berserk about it. That's what I think of Fiona as. She like wears Doc Martens and acts really punk, but is still rich and posh and mm. very snobby in those rich and posh ways. Um, like safely rebels, I think. Doesn't actually rebel. You don't see her out there doing anything to like help the disadvantaged, which is the most punk thing of all. So No. Like she acts like a rebel, but she very much tries to defend the status quo, right? Like she's trying to yeah. bring her family back to a position of power and like do all these things and be anti-mage. I do yeah. like that she like when we see her internal monologue, I do really like that chapter that's from her point of view. Yeah. Because I think you recognize that she knows she's a mess. She knows she doesn't have it together and she like yeah talks about how it was never supposed to be her that raised Baz right and she just tried to do her best she's moving against the expectations right like she she was not meant to be the person doing this but she's having to do it she feels like that's her job as the only pitch left Mm. but the expectation that she holds that Natasha would have done is to destroy her kid and she won't do that she's like I am better than you because I'm weaker which I thought was a fantastic line I actually just loved all of that because it's I feel like there's a big thing in this book about the expectation of Natasha that sort of just haunts this family. Like it just hangs over them. Fiona says, you know, you're wrong. And then Nicodemus says to Baz, you know, am I supposed to believe you're your mother's son? You haven't killed yourself yet. And that's sort of what pushes him to have this breakdown in the forest where he's like, you know, my mother killed herself. She wouldn't have let me live. Like it's just this expectation of what Natasha would do that pushes them along. But they don't really know what she would have done because when we expect things from people, we're only seeing one side of their personality. You're not in their head. You don't know everything about them. I think Simon has the most up-to-date information on Natasha Grimpich because he's the last person to have talked to her. Hmm. Like, she relayed a message and wanted to know if he had hurt her son and kissed Simon's forehead to give to Baz. Like, that's not somebody who doesn't know that their kid is a vampire and wants him dead. Is angry and wants to murder him. That's somebody who misses their kid and is waiting for their kid to be there and has come back again and again to see him. And this once every 20 year opportunity. Like, this is not somebody who is like, eh, you're a vampire. You're not a person anymore. Yeah. And I don't know if it was in the book, but there was a line that stuck out to me every time I listened to the audiobook where Simon was talking about how the mage kills vampires and he doesn't even consider it murder. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. What an expectation that they're not people that everybody holds. Everybody has this tradition of believing that vampires aren't people. And Simon yeah. rejects that. He rejects that tradition. He rejects that expectation. He won't have it. Also in that section when Simon says, why does he allow these vampires to exist, right? Like these mm-hmm. vampires in this club. So he's already asking the right questions, right? Like being yeah. like, well, why these ones? But also that idea that you're right, like this tradition of the what a vampire is and what they, how they should be treated and how you should react to them. Like Simon is so adamant that Baz has a soul, right? Like this is such yeah. a big thing for him that Baz like, is alive. Not dead. <laughs> yeah, are not dead. He even says it like, you still don't believe I'm dead? No, you are not dead. I love when he's like, you know, when Baz says to him, maybe you should write the book. And he's like, well, apparently I'm the world's leading expert. I just love that. It's true. He is. And he's right about observation, right? He does draw that distinction, which I felt a little uncomfortable with. Like, no, no, but you're a good vampire because you don't bite humans. Like, you're still a vampire. That is what he is. It kind of calls back something about the model minority, right? Yeah. I do love that he says, well, I'm not a militant, like, I'm not a militant vegetarian or something like that. I quite like that parallel being like, well, you just eat what you have to eat. It's not like I'm a vegetarian. It's quite nice. I think Simon just approaches it like it's cool because he thinks he's a little delighted by everything, really. I just also think the line where he says, you know, he asks Baz if he's done any research about vampires and he says, did it say anything about salt and vinegar crisps? I genuinely <laughs> think that is so funny. 
And Bess just ignores him, but I just think that is so <laughs> funny. Well, he stops himself from when he, when he, yeah, self help section. Yeah, reading about vampires, self help. He's so he's so mean, but it's like he doesn't say the mean thing, and Baz always says the mean thing. Oh my gosh, when when Baz is like, "Who named you anyway?" I'm like, Baz, you can't ask him that. That is so mean. It's really mean, and it makes Simon feel ashamed and alone, and it's such a horrible thing. Like, I think that the tradition between them is that Baz is always trying to poke and prod him and get him to go off and, like, annoy him, and he can't stop doing that because even though he's being vulnerable, he really hates it. Yeah, he has to bring up that defense, right? Always. But I do love that Simon's just like, no, we're more now, right? Obviously. This is happening. I'm so happy. Nothing's changed. Everything's changed. Who cares what's changed? Let's kiss some more. One kiss, two kisses. Double down, Simon. I love it. I love him for that. I think that this is a year of broken traditions. Hmm. And I was thinking about the way that the year started. Simon was waiting for Baz to turn up and Baz didn't turn up. And then the veil lifted, which is different than any other years. But then it came all the way to like, instead of spending Christmas with Agatha, he's spending Christmas by himself but then with Baz Mm. Agatha and Penny get together without Simon because Simon's not really allowed to go over to Penny's house and Agatha didn't want him anywhere near her so there are all these traditions that they've had that they've built that they've now broken and then we see that there's this parallel with some of the traditions at Watford that used to be there so like we get from Lucy's perspective Davy being so upset that they took the oracles away from Watford as an austerity measure and never brought them back and so it's a dead profession but then in like another section of this reading we have oh they don't do memory books anymore because that's and they don't have a drama society or Mm. linguistics class because the mage got rid of all of that so he's railing against all of these beautiful traditions that have been let go of but then he does the same thing when he gets to power which i think is just revolution is often built on dismantling traditions because tradition is a way of reinforcing community right it's Mm -hmm. a stability Mm -hmm. thing like tradition gives you stability so in order to revolutionize a society you have to dismantle and disestablish the traditions because that destabilizes people right yeah i also just think you know the traditions we create with our friends is really important and I think it's just you know Simon's never had any traditions until he had these friends that he started to create these traditions with with Agatha with Penny over Christmas and now he's been excluded from it and in a way it's only because Matali is mad at the mage like she's taking it out on Simon it's really quite mean and it's only because there's this expectation around how Simon's going to behave as the mage's heir right like even Daphne is like are you here on official business and he's like I never have official business he's just like he has no idea He's got the Beach Boys running on a loop in his head. <laughs> and then, you know, Bears is taking it, introduce him to his mother. And I'm just like, that's quite sweet. And you know, when he says, like, I just don't want him to leave. I just want to keep him here. And it's just, mm-hmm. oh, bless you, Bears. You've probably thought about, like, bringing Simon home so many times. I've never ever thought that it could be a possibility. You never thought he'd come running into your house. And now you're mad that he did. I love it. I love when he asks Simon, what are you doing here? And Simon says, well, you invited me. Like, that's the first thing he says. Mm. And I just love that kind of parallel between, like, vampires and having to be invited in somewhere. So, you know, Simon's like, well, you invited me. As a vampire, you should understand the uh, implications of that. I also love that he was like, you can't be mad at me. You invited me. Also really reminds me of what we do in the shadows when they try to go clubbing and they're trying to get the bouncers to invite them into clubs. (laughs) And the guy's like, what? No, just invite (laughs) us in. Just go in. No, you have to invite (laughs) us in. I recently rewatched watched that while I was making 8,527 masks for my son's school and um, it is a delightful film. Nothing will ever top the clueless police just not <laughs> seeing anything. A dead vampire no smoke on alarms. the floor. Yeah. <laughs> Nick hanging in the ceiling. So good. <laughs> it's just great. I just really love that movie. It's so ridiculous. 
that's my Halloween tradition. I watch it every Halloween. There you go. What a great tradition. My Halloween tradition is Hocus Pocus. A good one as well. I think so. It's very silly. I thought the whole war is kind of traditional. You know, it's passed from the elders onto the children, from the mage onto Simon, from, you know, Baz's dad to him. It's just expected that they'll all play their parts, right? Like, so when Baz brings Simon home, Malcolm immediately takes him aside and is like, should I call the old families? What are you up to? And then... Yeah, yeah. Everybody expects Baz to be doing these, like, little dark plots. Yeah. And, like, when he is in the forest and he has that little lament where he's like, my last, page 341, my last deed will be to save Simon Snow's life and my whole family will be ashamed like even like in this moment of despair he's like this is not the expectation of me I need to be doing something evil and I'm gonna save his life I shouldn't laugh at that but it's so melodramatic his whole breakdown I felt for him but also I was like you're fine stand up and stop being ridiculous I love when he's like how am I gonna spell him away from me but I don't want to like hurt him I don't want to like (laughs) break his bones but I don't want him to come back in here either oh bless you Baz yeah I think we should talk about that breakdown because I think he's really believing in the expectations that his mother would have killed him, right? Like, he yeah. believes in that. He thinks that the tradition of his family is that they were so against all dark creatures that they would have murdered him. And he thinks his dad should kill him, and he says that. He says something like, I know if I ever ate a human, if I ever bit a person, my dad would kill me. He probably should anyway. Like, that's dark. But there's also that, you know, he really thinks that he should burn himself up because his mother did. Yeah, I think Nicodemus really triggers that right so it's Mm. page 334 when he says you know you're going to set us all alight you haven't killed yourself yet and I think Baz always has this he's always had this low level of self-hatred running through everything like we've seen it throughout the text so far like he doesn't think that he's natural he doesn't think that he should exist he is filled with self-loathing he lives in this world where everyone tells him vampires are evil and that is what he is and therefore he is evil and then you've got the mage being like pictures are evil so he's got that as well being like you know they're darker than other magics and it's just a lot to be told constantly that you're wrong and that you're bad yeah and i wonder there's something about the taking responsibility for the benefits we get from having that sort of familial past but not taking personal responsibility for it having been done that he's kind of yet to get to do you know what Mm. i mean like we all benefit from colonialism and slavery and like there's no escaping that like both of us are white women we have this immense privilege that is conferred Mm. upon us like we get a lot more privileges than women of color or other people of color but at the same time like we haven't personally enslaved anyone but we still benefit from it like how do you yeah the institutional Mm. Yeah, you have to thread the needle of like, right, this is terrible. What can I do to work against the system that still benefits me without like taking on that personal guilt for myself? Because that's really disabling. And I feel like Baz is at that point where he's just so disabled by his guilt and his shame about what he is, who he is. Yeah. And I also think, you know, he's done this. He's gone into this environment, this vampire club. And I think Simon and Baz both have expectations of what they think vampires are like. Right. And then they get to this club and it's actually quite swanky, like the top level. It's really cool. and suave and it's like probably not what they expected like Simon says you know I don't know what I was expecting blood cocktails blood on the floor you know all these things it's very clean and very dark and like the most impressive thing is that they look very rich and very grey but they don't look what is it thin and cheekbony like they do in the films (laughs) yeah 
So I think they kind of off balance, you know, he's come to play a part. Like he is dressed up. He has an act that he's playing. Like he's mm-hmm. staying so cool. He's got this whole thing with the cigarette. I'm just, I live for this moment. I think Baz is incredible in it. And so does Simon, you know, he's like, he's like some sort of dark king. Mm-hmm. They want to put a crown on his head. Like he's obsessed with him there. And then he gets out of there and he just crumbles. And I think that's because he's hold all this tension. He's held this tension to yeah. pull off this ruse. And this man has like pressed his button, his most sensitive button. And he just can't hold it. Like, you know, he can't hold it together. And he shouldn't have to. But I'm glad at least he was with Simon and not, like, his dad or Fiona, who probably would have just lit everyone on fire for funsies. I'm glad that he was with Simon, because Simon actually is... I don't know. What am I thinking? Like, he's kind of like the canary in the coal mine. He reacts a lot, but he does react when he needs to. Yeah, he pulled Baz out of there. And I think it was really prescient that he says to Nicodemus that your sister misses you. I thought that was quite a good exit. Also, Nicodemus is such a little brat. Like, you know, I love when he flinches away from the cigarette. Like, I'm like, yeah, you're not such a big man, are you? I feel like he is someone who bought a lie and has regretted it ever since. And has felt the sting of it and now wants everybody else to hurt as much as he does. Yeah, you know that line when Simon says Nicodemus laughs like nothing matters and Eb laughs like everything matters? I just really love that. Me too. I love Eb. Eb is the best. The more I read these books and the more I reread these sections, the more I just have an immense love for Eb the goat herd who has an amazing amount of power but chooses to remain unremarkable. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's something about Agatha saying exactly that, that her parents don't have expectations for her to rise to greatness. Like she she does not have to do anything. She doesn't have yeah. to be anything. Her parents are just happy that she's like clean and well dressed and rides well in her competitions. Yeah, there's a general expectation of parents for their kids, right? Like so mm. Agatha in that section says of Penny, page three thirteen, if Penny doesn't cure cancer and find the fairies, I think her mum will be vaguely disappointed. Which I think is why we see Penny often like she often just makes decisions without really thinking about it, because she's like mm-hmm. her mum. Like, you know, she remarks of her mum, Dad says mum wanted everything immediately, and I think Penny's yeah. a bit like that. Yeah. I think it's very lucky that Martin and Matelli had the kids they had. I'm just going to say, like, they're not the most hands-on parents. No, they're frightfully independent. Yeah, the kids, like, making their own food and what. Like, I was, I, I could do all of that when I was younger. And, like, my mom was always at home. But there were periods of time when, like, we kind of just had to fend for ourselves for whatever reasons. And, like, we were fine. We were able to like, operate a microwave and stuff as kids. And, like, back in the 80s and 90s, it wasn't that big a deal to leave your kids at home for, like, an hour or two. So it was fine. But, yeah, I just think now, like... <laughs> My daughter and I negotiated about baking a cake this week and I was like, okay, I will walk you through all of the steps and like, I want to teach you how to use the oven properly. And I'm like, wow, I was cooking whole dinners at her age and like, it was fine. That's what the smoke alarms are for, kind of, you know, but I think that Agatha's got people to do for her and that's why, partly why it's so jarring that the Bunces are so independent would be my guess. Yeah, because she's got Helen. Yeah, and you know, her mom wouldn't even leave her bedroom looking like... Matali's been walking around their house, you know, in the cardigan and the same pair of sweatpants. And, you know, it's exactly that this whole controversy about Kim Kardashian this week, how she's like, you just need to get up and work. And I was like, it's easy for a billionaire to say that we should all just get up and work when you have yeah. literal billions of dollars and thousands of people who work this for you. drives me nuts because i see the same thing when people say you have the same amount of hours of the day oh, as beyonce yeah. i'm like yeah but beyonce has a team like i watched homecoming i saw that she's got childcare, she's got people helping her she's got like a nanny for each kid like she does the work but she also has the support and like your average person is not going to have that support yeah it's the same about when people like you know when people get upset because they don't look as hot as a celebrity i'm like 
they literally train for eight hours a day. They've got nothing else to do. Like yep. if you had it's eight hours job. a day to train, you would also look like that. So don't beat yourself up about it. If you it. had people cooking for you. And like you've heard, I've heard, I think Hugh Jackman talking about it where he was like, I don't want to look like that again. I don't want to get beefy. It's terrible. You just eat chicken breasts and egg white omelets all the time and you have to mm. tr- like do exercise and it's not fun. It's not a fun way to be. So I appreciate myself for not feeling like I'm obligated to look a certain way. Yeah. Um, I think, I don't know if I had any more traditions specifically to talk about. I thought about the book that the mages have that they apparently note mages in, you know, because Nicodemus is struck from the book. Like, that's a bit of a tradition, right? Like, this tradition that goes back centuries, presumably. Well, the record is a tradition, right? But there's also the tradition of once someone is struck from the book, you don't talk about them. And yeah, the way the the magic, the tradition of magic, right? Like, it passes down in families. So fire Mm. in the pitch line and, like, the ebb line kind of turning out these super mages every couple of generations. So there's this kind of, like, traditional element and the the power of magic. And actually, I wanted to talk about the expectations around power. We've sort of spoken about it before. Mm. Like, if you are very powerful in this world, it is expected that you will use it and then Baz is so scornful of Eb you know he says and to think she wastes it all on ghosts and moping and I wonder if he would still hold that opinion if he knew that what his mum had said to Eb because in the previous episode we talked about this lovely line that she has where she says you know you were born with it but it doesn't have to be your destiny if it's heavy put it down it's quite a contrast to how power snobs a lot of people are like yeah. Agatha calls Metalia power snob the she mage for all his posturing about the old families is a power snob as well you know he's like yeah. i'm more powerful than all these cretins like he's not a nice man also when he turns up to people's parties he turns up muddy in his uniform doesn't talk to him leaves early i love that he's... agatha's so indignant on her mom's behalf about that it's so cute but also like that's just bad form like if you're gonna yeah. show up play the game play it right I also just really love that when Simon lets Baz draw magic to call the deer, this is, I think, the first time he's ever felt good about his magic. You know, Baz says to him on page 348, you need to stop doing that godlike displays of magic. And Simon says, why? It's cool. And I think this is the first time we've seen him actually feel good about his magic. And later, you know, before this, he's talking about giving more magic to Baz and how he feels clean and it feels like a current. And it's really Baz that gives him this, like, ability to really appreciate what his magic can do, which is just beautiful because he's never had that. It is really beautiful. And I really love that he gets the opportunity to use it in a way that is actually productive and predictable. Mm. Because it's always just gone off, you know, and he doesn't want to just go off. He doesn't want to be, he wants to have a choice in it and he doesn't really. Which reminds me when they're in the vampire bar and Simon says that he makes contact, eye contact with one of the guys and he doesn't look away and so he draws a little bit of magic up and he's like, I'll just draw it to my skin. And I feel like that's a level of control that we've not seen previously either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's much more in control around Baz, which I love because Baz's whole thing is being in control, right? Like he's so controlling with his fire and his emotions and mm. and like he doesn't let anything slip. And every time he does let something slip, he's like self-flagellating about it. Like when he says do you think I should ask my parents if I'm alive? Like he doesn't even mean to let that slip, but he does. And then he's just really angry at himself for conceding. But yeah, Simon's control, I think is because Baz is in control. And that's something that he really admires about him. That unruffledness. Yeah, except when he's threatening Baz and it's kind of infuriating, but it's kind of cool now. I love that (laughs) line. It's cool when you're on the good side of it. This is exactly how Baz feels about Penelope. Like as long as she's on my side, I don't mind admitting that she's a fierce magician. Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, the only other tradition I had was this idea about gender conformity, right? So oh, yeah. how you know how often feminism can be quite exclusionary of people who do like traditionally feminine things, like women who like to do their makeup or paint their nails or wear dresses, and how often people are quite dismissive of their feminism. Yeah. So I just think you know when Agatha says why shouldn't gingerbread girls feel like they should wear pink, you know, like that's fair. That's a fair assumption. Why shouldn't she let them wear pink and Penny's just like oh it's only because you've been conditioned to like it by Barbies and gendered Lego I love how she immediately says lay off Penny I don't even have Lego listen as somebody who played with both Barbies and Lego as a kid and went through the whole I hate pink phase and now loves pink again because it is a respectable and awesome color let me just say a color that you like is just a color that you like I'm Mm. glad that Agatha pushes back on that. I feel like she should be allowed to like what she likes. And Penny does sit in judgment of Agatha about these things, like telling her that she doesn't have to be ashamed of using beauty spells on her hair. And Agatha goes, my hair just does this. And um, Penny's like, but you don't have to be ashamed of using beauty spells. It's just so funny the way that they nitpick at each other for not being each other's ideal expectation of what a girl should be. I really feel for Agatha because I feel like she is constantly being judged for the things she likes, whether it's liking pink, whether it's just wanting to have normal friends, whether it's just wanting to do the show jumping and not wanting to do magic. She's just constantly told that everything she does is the wrong way to do things, the wrong way to love Simon, the wrong way to be in the world of mages, just everything is wrong. Yeah, she's not enough or she's not she's failing some expectation which she doesn't even have any interest in i'm glad she's finally pushing back i mean she's a mm-hmm. huge snob i'm gonna say it she's a huge snob and we see that a lot here yeah like when she's talking about the bunces and how she's like they're so absent-minded they'll just leave me in a room and walk away their kids are frightfully independent like they don't even have set meal times like it's okay calm down it's fine <laughs> it doesn't have yeah. to run the same households don't have to be the same it's like she's so used to the traditions of her household that she finds everything else really confronting i'm amazed that she's staying there so long to be honest like she says she's been there almost two days and she stays that night as well it's like why mm. are you staying over this much yeah and she even mentions like not for the first time i've thought about how i'm missing out on seeing my normal friends my real friends mm. that would be hard she is in the world though like that is the world that she's in she has to accept that too even if she doesn't want to yeah simon's expectation that the pitches are just up to something like he expects them to spring a trap on him even though they didn't know he was coming and he's come here out (laughs) of his own free will and he's still like is this a trap is there a trap door somewhere? This seems like the kind of house that would have dungeons and a trap door leading <laughs> to the dungeons. I also love that his expectations of Baz are kind of like subverted in this section, right? Like, so he has very clear expectations of what he thinks it means to be a vampire and what Baz gets up to as a vampire. And then he's like, oh, he's actually the most reluctant, least bloodsucking vampire ever. Yeah, now I know that it's just household pets and legal game. Eh. Shrug. Which I think was the point. Like, I think that this is the thing with Simon is that he always wants to do what's right. So, like, biting and killing people is not right. Legal game and household pets, that's fine. Yeah, and, like, they just really do not understand vampires at all. Like, this, they have no idea what they do. Simon, when they're going to the vampire club, is like, oh, all these murders happening in Soho. Do you really think if people were getting murdered at that rate, you wouldn't know about it? So clearly something else is happening. Yeah, 100%. And I think even Simon brings it up, like, does it always have to be fatal? Like, surely it can't always be fatal. I just love when he's like, <laughs> you who can't walk away from half a sandwich. <laughs> The acknowledgement that he has the same hunger as Simon, but in a different direction, which I love. There's so many parallels between them. 
Yeah, and Baz on his side also always expects Simon to react a certain way and he's constantly blindsided when he doesn't. So mm-hmm. I think with Penny, this is obvious. Like he just expects Simon to tell Penny. He sees them as this little unit, this fierce little unit who never gives up on anything. Yeah. So the fact that he hasn't told Penny about and he's just come straight here, he's like, what? And then also with the kiss, right? Like, and that came out of nowhere. He doesn't expect that. And his reaction to actually conf- having confirmation that he's a vampire, you know, he's shocked by that too. Being like, how are you so cool about this? And Simon's like, like he takes a minute where he's like you really are okay this is somebody who has no issues with like identity i think he just knows who he is he, the expectation of what he has to do is something that is so present in his mind that he doesn't think about the other stuff he even says as much like he just can't he can't think about a future because he doesn't think he's gonna get one. Oh gosh that whole scene where he was talking with Baz like I can't think about it and then Baz is like well do you do that with me and he's like yeah imagine trying not to think about you right like I could it's like an elephant standing on your chest I just it really hurts me that Simon expects so little of his life right like he doesn't even have any pictures of himself or with his friends like whether subconsciously he just doesn't see the point right and he talks about page 355 because it hurts to think about things that you can't have or help it's better not to think about it it just doesn't matter I'll fight until I can't fight anymore what is there to think about It's just so much for this poor child. And of course, all Baz does is think. Like, all he does is overthink everything. Yeah, a little bit. Except that one where he says, I don't know what I'm thinking. I love that. (laughs) I wish I knew what he was thinking. I don't know what I'm thinking. It's good. I like that Baz is a little off kilter. And I like that Simon even acknowledges that he enjoys that about what's happening. Like, I like him. I've got him exactly where I want him. Under my thumb, in my hands. He's not plotting or getting hurt or hurting anyone else just gonna keep kissing him and then he says i don't have to think about whether or not i'm gay i just have to keep holding on to baz which i think is wonderful and honestly there's so many narratives about coming out at the moment and there's this idea with a lot of younger queer people that you have to have an identity and i would like to tell you as an elder millennial and a member of the queer community you don't have to know you can know you're not straight and that's enough you cannot want to examine it and that's fine you don't even have to come out if you don't want to it is fine you don't have to know I love that Simon never picks a side. I love it because I want to acknowledge the fact that he and Agatha did have a relationship and it wasn't like a trial relationship. Like they were in love and loved each other and Mm. physically were attracted to each other. And he's feeling the same way about Baz and that's okay. I just, I've seen a lot of, especially because as we've spoken, the carry on fandom is quite a bit younger. So there seems to be this real backlash against Simon not immediately being like, oh, well, I'm gay. Nothing I did before this matters. Like, no, that's, that's not actually how life works. It's not how identity (laughs) works. Identity is not like that. And identity is also fluid like what you are when you're 18 might be vastly different when you're 38 and that's fine like that's fine we change and we move and and honestly thank goodness i also just i like that there doesn't have to be there doesn't have to be a big coming out moment i feel like sometimes Mm. that's really like forced on people you don't have to it doesn't have to be like that this isn't a story about a kid coming to terms with being gay this is a story about two people who've been circling each other for a really long time finally working and acting on their feelings yeah. The fact that it's two boys is kind of beside the point, even. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It's not the point, but it, it's also an important part of it, but it's not the point. Well, they're just soulmates. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just straight up soulmates. I agree. I think they're very good for each other. And I love that Simon is so much more with Baz. And I love that Baz is finally letting himself be vulnerable. The very end. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <sighs> not angry vulnerable either, but like, I wanted to kiss you for a really long time vulnerable. Yeah. <sighs> Um, I just want to talk one more thing about like tradition and expectation. Mm-hmm. I love Baz's stepmom. I love that she's like, 
okay, there's a kid in my house. I'm going to feed him dinner. I'm going to be polite. I'm going to offer him extra helpings. Everybody is so nice to him, even though they're like, oh my gosh, this is the like protege of the number one enemy Spy of state, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're still following this ritual, this tradition of like politeness and like Good that manners. is absolutely right. If you're our guest, we're going to treat you like a guest. Um, and it just delights me that Daphne's like, would you like more food? Good. And he just hoovers it up because he's starving all of the time. I love it. Yeah, I love that Thaz is like, she keeps offering and he keeps taking it. It's like this <laughs> never ending thing. And you can just imagine the rest of the family just sitting there watching this. Like, what is happening? I think that was it for me. I mean, I could go on for another hour and a quarter, but like, maybe I shouldn't. I had some tangential things. Oh, yeah, me too. Go for it. Um, firstly, I just want to call out the bit where, ba- like Simon says, I'd always imagined Baz lounging around in suits and waistcoats because later he will be doing that. So I like that. I like that. I love Simon's that already seen that part of Baz, right? Like mm-hmm. Baz is still discovering that side of himself, but he'll get there. I love the line when Simon's having this internal monologue after he's kissed Baz, where he's like, going through I'm kissing a monster and he's like he's not a monster he's just a villain he's not a villain he's just a boy on page 343 mm-hmm. there is this ocean Vyong poem I think where there's this line that says to be a monster is a hybrid signal a lighthouse both shelter and warning at once and I always think about that when I read that section because like you know he's not a monster but he is something else and that means yeah. something it means something to Simon and I just really love that yeah that's from his book and that's specifically talking about queerness as well which is and race Mm. i think which is another like that he's talking about the intersectionality of queerness and race if i recall correctly but um i will pop it in the show notes it's so beautiful i just love the idea of like both shelter and warning at once because i feel like that does really sum up bears like he is Mm. he is a safe space for like a safe harbor for simon right but he is also very prickly he's kind but not nice He's still getting there as well. He's still learning. He doesn't quite trust what's happening, which is fair enough. But once he's in, he's all in, which we'll see later. And I love that. I love that he's just like, it's a decision for him. And he's not very good at declaring it, but it is genuinely. He's like, no, I've just decided this is fine. This is what we're doing. Um, I have a few little tangents. I like when Simon tells him, I've never turned my back on you and I'm not starting now because it means both I've always watched you because I've always believed you to be plotting, but it's also like I've always watched you and I'm not going to stop now. And I think that Simon is starting to really understand that things are different. He even recognizes like, why would I have a list of things I've always wanted to do to Baz if I hadn't thought about this before? Like, I don't think he'd ever consciously thought about it, but like he wants to touch Baz's hair and he's thought about what it would be like. And so he does. And like, it's, it's just marvelous that he's going, oh, it's the italicized O, but without actually being the italicized O, and I'm here for it. Yeah, when he talks about the way that, you know, when he's listing all the ways this is different, and he talks about mm. noticing the way Baz's hair falls lazily across his forehead, and he's like, oh, no, I thought about that before. I just... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, Cute. oh, wait, I have been obsessed with you for years. Um, And I, I think the other tangents I had were, I really love all of Matali's conversations about Lucy, how she like fought and fought and fought with Lucy and Lucy eventually pulled away because she was just tired of having to defend her partner. And like, this is something that I think about a lot when like you don't like someone that your friend is partnered with and you kind of like, I'm going to have to put up with them, right? Because if they're a really terrible fit, I can't leave my friend to be alone through that process, but also like... And it reminded me very much of Tiffy from 
the flat share. Oh, yes. And how her friends put up with Justin the Horrible uh. for years and his gaslighting and his like awful traumatizing of Tiffy because they knew that if they pushed too hard against him, she, that would, she withdraw. would just disappear and they would lose her completely. But um, it just made me think like how many times have I been like, well, we're growing apart now and that's fine. But I think Mitali could have done better. I have a question about that. I'm trying to remember and I can't. Does Lucy tell her mum she's going to America or does Davy spread that rumour after Lucy died? I think Lucy tells them all that she's left so that she can be alone with Davy because she likes to be alone with Davy. I think that's what happens. Well, does she like to be alone with Davy or does Davy make her feel like she can't see other people? She likes him. But like the, I, I, I know. The thing. She really loves him and she believes in his ideals. She's not 100% about them. I don't think she thought he would kill her with his harebrained idea of creating a, a chosen one. I absolutely believe that she loves him, but I also think that he does isolate her from her loved ones. So I go back and forth on this, whether or not he loves her or not. I feel like she loves him and he just kind of rolls with it because, like, why not? She's powerful. She's there. He gets something from it, but I don't know if it's love. He's almost too egotistical. He's almost a bit of a sociopath. <laughs> it's kind of like Dumbledore, right? Do you know what I mean? Everyone at arm's length. I don't know. I always felt like Dumbledore genuinely cared about people, even though he kept them at arm's length. I thought there was like an undercurrent of real emotion there. I don't get that with Davy. But we also don't get as much of Davy. No, but I do. There's something about him that I just feel like he, I feel like he's sort of gotten into Lucy's head about, you know, yes, yeah, she is tired of defending him to others because everyone thinks he's so insufferable. And so maybe she pulls away from those she loves because she's tired of defending them. But also maybe he makes her think that other people just don't care about her and she should pull away. I don't, there's like, there's something a bit abusive, like emotionally abusive in that. Like, yeah. you know, how you are isolated from those you love because... Yeah. It's very troubling. Your partner doesn't want to share you, basically. I honestly don't know if it's that, though. I feel like she just is, she loves him and she's with him and she's sinking herself wholeheartedly into that. I feel like he's very apathetic about it. Like, he likes having her there, but I don't think he's, like, trapping her there. Let's think about that as we read on because I'd love to get more insight into it. I'd love to actually think about it. And I know that we get more of their relationship as we are reading this book. I also wonder what Mitali's going to say, and this is jumping ahead to like book three, mm. but once she finds out that Simon is Lucy's son, like, is she going to tell him stories about his mum? Is that going to change the way she treats him? Because she's a bit dismissive of him now, right? Because she sees him as like mini mage. But you know, will Agatha remember that she stole that photo? Will she give it to Simon? Does she still have it? Like, I'm dying. I need to know. <laughs> I want Simon I know. to know about his mum. The bit where Agatha picks up the picture and puts it in her pocket and she's like staring at all of the things about Lucy that are the things about Simon that everybody notices like the red cheeks and the hair blue and the eyes. eyes like that to me just felt a bit like oh like you you are looking at this picture and seeing someone that you recognize without realizing that you're seeing someone that you recognize like I don't think that she feels a kinship with Lucy simply because of this conversation she's had with Penny's mom I think she sees something in that photo I agree and she also says you know she finds the mage handsome like she's recognizing these parts and these people which are parts of someone she loves right like she loves yeah. Simon like she's not in love with him but she loves him she loves him just not enough yeah and she recognizes those aspects of him and this and these these strangers and she doesn't connect it but that's what she's seeing that's what she's connecting yeah. with um completely besides the point but lucy and davy you know they meet under a yew tree and they are generally uh, associated with death and resurrection in um mm. celtic culture so i'm like that's fine that's fine i'm fine <laughs> everything's fine 
All I can remember about yew trees is that isn't that the kind of bow that Robin Hood has? Like I have, I seem to remember a yew bow being a big deal. And also, aren't they super poisonous? Isn't that also what the elder wand is made of? No, or is it elder? elder. Yeah, I'm just like as I said that, I'm like, no, no, that's incorrect. (laughs) It's in the name. Harry's wand is holly and Phoenix feather. Who's got a yew wand? Someone must. Is it Googling it? Yeah. Yes, it's our dear friend, Mr. Voldemort. Okay, that would make sense. The death and resurrection, yeah. And Ginny. Well, fair enough. She nearly died and was resurrected in the Chamber of Secrets. Hmm. Anyway, some you facts. <laughs> um, there's a line where Martin Bugs is talking to Penelope and he says about the humdrum, page 326, I worry that your generation will just acclimate to it, that you won't see the necessity of fighting back. And I'm like, hello, COVID, is that you? <laughs> Please go away. Yeah, I mean, that probably was written as a response to like the ongoing occupation of various countries in the Middle East by the yeah. US and the Allied forces. But like... It really feels very prescient. Like yesterday when you were saying about like, oh, you're going to this party and it's on a rooftop. And I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, you guys have COVID now. New Zealand has been COVID free for so long. that You've basically been living a normal life. Mm-hmm. But we've had it here for like two years and like it's been a thing. So I had just mentally adjusted. No, Gen D can't do anything. But Gen V still goes out and does stuff. It was so funny because I got that text about the party and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll invite the book club and stuff. So I texted them and they were like, oh, I just don't feel comfortable going to a party with strangers. And like for this brief, glorious moment, I had completely forgotten that COVID was a thing. I was like, oh, yeah, that's That's right. COVID. The world is a nightmare. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Existence is a prison and the world is a nightmare. Um, did you have in-depth marginalia? I did. So my in-depth marginalia is when Simon and Baz are in the pitch library and they're arguing over whether vampires are alive or not and whether they have souls. And, you know, Simon has some pretty strong opinions that they do, but Baz doesn't necessarily agree with Simon. So mine is on page 301 and it is, it's death, I say looking back down at my book because you look at other people, living people, and they seem really far away. They seem like something else, the way birds seem like something else, and they're full of something you don't have. You could take it from them, but it still won't be yours. They're full, and you're hungry. You're not alive, you're just hungry. So I think it plays into our theme of expectations, because Baz is basing this on what he thinks other people's lives are like, what he expects it to be. It's a game of comparison that has been built on expectations of how the other half lives, right? He's already admitted that he doesn't remember what it was like to not be a vampire so and it's this expectation of himself like what his condition kind of like makes him right he's a vampire and therefore that means this about him firstly i just want to flag that this is actually a really great humdrum parallel yet again like you're empty and you're hungry it's the way that humdrum is hungry for magic and how simon is always hungry for affection so i think that's quite interesting but it also just struck me as a really good summation of depression because when I've been depressed, like I often describe it as like being underwater, like everything I'm viewing the world and other people through this wall of water where everything is sort of slow and blurred and muted. And you look yeah. at other people and they do seem really far away and they do seem full of something that you can't have. You know, they have this happiness and this will to live and they're in color and you're on black and white, right? Life force. Yeah. And you feel like you are capable just by being around them of leeching that color out of them, but you're not pulling it into yourself. It doesn't make you colorful. You're kind of just like draining them and that doesn't make you full. So you're not alive. You're just existing. So that's why I thought like, I think that's quite a good depression parallel like that whole bit and i think baz is actually depressed he just doesn't know it yeah he definitely needs to like talk to someone about his feelings because he has a lot of them and he's not processing any of them in healthy ways just sarcasm and self-loathing really 
So I think going forward, it's just important to remember that what you see in other people isn't necessarily the whole truth and what they put up, whether it's on social media or if you're just chatting to them, the face they present to you, it's actually just a fraction of their life. And you might think that they live in color, but you don't know what's going on with them. You don't know, you know, if they're not also hungry. So, you know, just all you can do is be kind, be kind to others, be kind to yourself. And if you're in a tough spot mentally, I know it seems really trite, but it won't always be that way. It really does get better. It does. It does. Thanks, Jen. That was beautiful. What was your in-depth marginalia? Uh, Mine was a very short sentence, or a very short pair of sentences, on page 324. Your magic settles in a place. It supports you. And the context for this is Penny is discussing how the holes in the magical atmosphere have caused some families to have to move, and how disastrous that is for settled magical families. She's worrying a bit about what would happen if the holes over London got bigger, or converged over her house, what that would mean for her family. And Penny, as we know, has a lot of opinions and she presents many of them as facts she often says that's impossible but like it has just happened so it's not impossible so i like i kind of view her as like a good resource but also an unreliable narrator but i couldn't help but think about this in in light of our themes this just really stuck out to me i think there's a tradition around magic like there's a tradition around magical families there seems to always be this connection with an ancestral home like even the petties as we'll see later have an ancestral home mm. baz's family has an ancestral home agatha's family does like people live in these places for years and generations and like it goes back a long time and that seems very like yes english landed gentry but also there is this long-standing tradition of the magic in the place being part of it and you know those expectations are mirrored in your environment and that's true for i guess non-magical people as well people judge your house or judge your environment and then they judge you based on that so in terms of relating to other tax texts i was thinking of uh the casita from encanto which is like Mm. the obvious connection like it's a house that has a soul and has its own magic and has its own personality um but i think that there's a less obvious connection that i'd like to touch on uh recently queensland and new south wales have been devastated by extreme flooding because we are in the grips of climate change and we've had a La Nina year and so everything is just awful and hundreds and hundreds of people have lost their homes or their homes have been flooded but they've lost all their things I mean people have died it's awful I think about the way that when you live in a place you or like especially if it's a house like a house of your own you pour so much of yourself into it you pour your time and your energy into it like the amount of rooms I've painted in my own house and like the things that I've done mm. to fix my own house or to like make it nice or to make it a certain way, all of that gets poured into it. And it like s- sort of takes a lot of me in. Like it, mm. it does have my stamp on it and I do care about it. Like it becomes more mine because of the responsibility I've had to take for it. And so I've, I'm just really grieving for the people who are losing their homes, who've lost their homes, who've lost all of their things because they've lost their seed of magic, right? They've lost the place that they were themselves, that they had put all of this time and energy into. So I think going forward, I really like the idea of purposely putting love into a place and like thinking about where I live as sacred in a way and maybe that will help me when I'm balking and doing the vacuuming or whatever but <laughs> I also want to do some good so I'm going to put some money toward um, flood relief just just because I need to do something and I'm not going to send any stuff up there because they have enough stuff it's all been ruined but if they have money they can buy the things they need which is actually what everybody should do in an emergency <laughs> they should always mm. send money 
Um, so that's what I'm going to do. Oh, that's been a rough time. Watching the floodwaters come up and go down. And the community I grew up in had a bad flood in 96, in February of 96. And like we had lots of landslides. And so this is just like a lot of this is reminding me of what it's like to live in an area that does get inundated with floodwater. It's scary. Yeah. Can't fight it. Can't fight nature, right? Yeah. Did you have a character you want to spotlight this time? I do. I'm going to spotlight Baz again. Keeping things together and then having a full-scale meltdown is very on-brand for me. So I, you know, (laughs) I recognize that. I think it's a lot of pressure to kind of like keep everything together when you need to and then just having, allowing yourself to feel your emotions. I mean, ideally not getting overwhelmed to them to that point. But, you know, I think for anyone hanging on by the thinnest of threads, because life is hard right now, I just want to say I see you and I feel you and I'm sorry that you're made to feel like if you're ever made to feel like Baz, like you're doing something wrong or your opinions don't matter or you don't belong. You you know, you do. You're valid. You are loved. So, yeah. You're not the monster you think you are. No. Who would you like to spotlight? I'm going to spotlight two people. I'm going to spotlight Martin and Metalli Bunce and their weird little family. It kind of works. <laughs> it's very imperfect. I have a lot of criticisms about Metalli and Martin and their hands-off parenting. I think that they're lucky they had the kids they had. But something stuck with me. Simon suggested to Baz that he ask his parents about Nicodemus. And Baz immediately shoots it down as being a dumb idea. But the fact that Simon said that is because he's been around Penny and her parents. And Penny just asks her mom all the time, why, why, why? Agatha even says, God, they must be so sick of that question by now. Mm. But they always answer. And they usually are fine with, like, they just tell her what she needs to know. Like, Penny's surprised that her dad lies because it's so unusual, right? And so Simon's model for parents and their kids is the Bunces. And Mm. he uses that as, like, his paradigm. So I really love that. I think they must be doing something right because Penny can always ask her mom and dad things. And so Simon just thinks it's normal for kids who have parents to be able to talk to their parents. And Mm. I really love that. So that's really great of them. And I would like to commend them for that. Yeah, they're open with their knowledge. I think that's really good. I think that knowledge is not something to be withheld unless it's Christmas presents. Then you can keep it a secret for a little while. (laughs) Cute. Well, next week we'll be reading chapters 63 through 70 on the theme of secrets. I'm excited gonna be good i know it really is thank you so much for potting with me today jen i'm so glad we get to catch up and i love that we're reading this book together um thank you it's just been so joyful and exactly what i need to sign off on my weekend so thank you perfect all right well i'll see you next time see you next week Bye. bye Thanks for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by Jen D and Jen B, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed our chat, you can subscribe to Marginalia Pod on your podcast platform of your choice. Your support means the world to us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. For extended show notes or to find out more about us, visit us at www.marginaliapod.com. 